Well, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to uh, Grant's Interest Rate Observer Radio. I am here this morning. It's still morning, I think. Yes, it's still morning. I'm here with Eric Whitehead at the controls. He is our sound engineer and the great Evan Lorenz, analyst par excellence, is sitting directly across from my cluttered desk. Good morning, Evan. Good morning, Eric. And good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I am Jim Grant. Uh, we are here today to, uh, I think we'll talk about risk, Evan, in its many interesting forms. And uh, we are going to see what we can do to clarify things and maybe uh, think of an investment idea or two. I don't know. It depends what turns up. But first, a word from our sponsor, who happens to be me. Now, uh, there is no bad time to subscribe to Grant's Interest Rate Observer. That is for sure. But now just might be the best time. Now, when markets are making highs and volatility is plumbing lows, and the SEC staff, in its wisdom, has waved through the first quadruple leveraged ETF. We at Grant's are the yes, but people. We are skeptics, doubters, first guessers. Whether it's a macroeconomic theory, some crack-brained central bank doctrine, a common stock, or a subordinated debenture, Grant's puts it to the analytical test. We publish every two weeks, 24 times a year. Hey, visit our website and read for yourself. See for yourself, and as we encourage every reader, think for yourself. Subscribe to Grant's. Uh, there's no time like the present. So Evan, Evan, you handed me, before we sat down, a wonderful piece of, uh, of commentary in the Times. It has to do with, uh, uh, with the uh, algorithmicization that's a word, of the insurance business. Do tell what you have found. Sure. In yesterday's uh, big read in the Financial Times, there's an article about uh, insurance companies using algorithms to replace underwriters. And what really drew my eye is uh, life insurers are now allowing consumers to submit selfies, uh, pictures from their phones, and they'll uh, underwrite life insurance based off of that. They'll look at the picture and see, are you aging well? Uh, what is your BMI? Do you smoke? How do you look? Uh, do you have, uh, I, I, uh, I assume, you know, a you know, tan? I mean, do you look healthy? Do you look happy? Then they'll use all that information from the picture and that picture alone to actually underwrite a life insurance policy. Reminds me a little of a mortgage underwriting in 2003, four and five. No need to show up personally. Uh, um, your agent would do and, uh, and no need also for scrupulous truth telling on the application form. Not only that, but um, the, the economic models of that time actually ruled out the the possibility of a, a nationwide uh, real estate bubble. It, it, it just, they said real estate's always a local market. It's never happened before. It will never happen. And if you look to uh, listen to um, uh, Chair Ben Bernanke up through 2006 and 2007, real estate was constrained. While it was frothy in some markets, there was no problem nationwide. Well, I think perhaps the underlying point is that risk is, is always with us. It takes different forms. In fact, I have also furnished by my confrere, Evan, I have a wonderful piece uh, of writing from um, one of the more thoughtful people in central banking, Andrew Haldane, who was connected with the Bank of England. And uh, in 2014, I believe, he gave a speech. And the speech contained these two paragraphs. I'm going to read them because I, I, I read them uh, when they came out. I was so struck and uh, I'm happy to be reacquainted with them now and perhaps you too will enjoy them. So here it is. Well, one of the likely consequences of the great financial crisis, so says Andrew Haldane, and the resulting regulatory response is that the financial system will reinvent itself. Uh, financial activity will migrate outside the banking system. And with that move, risk may itself change shape and form. What previously had been credit maturity mismatch, risk on the balance sheet of the banking system may metastasize into market and illiquidity risk on the balance sheets of non-banks. 
This could have important implications for the stability of the financial system and the broader economy. And it gets even better than that. And, uh, so uh, Andrew Haldane continues, uh, with more activity outside the banking system and with the banking system itself better protected, the financial system and economy may become less prone to low frequency, high cost banking crises seen in the past. But that is not the end of the story. Risk, like energy, tends to be conserved, not dissipated, to change the composition, but not its quantum. So it is possible the financial system may exhibit a new strain of systemic risk, a, a greater number of higher frequency, higher amplitude, cyclical fluctuations in asset prices and financial activity, now originating in the balance sheets of mutual funds, insurance companies, and pension funds, rather than banks. These cyclical fluctuations could in turn be transmitted to and mirrored in greater cyclical instabilities in the wider economy. Close quote. That was Andrew Haldane holding forth on the ever-shifting nature of risk. That was a few years ago, but certainly it rings true today. You know, Evan, we have been writing in the past several issues of grants about um, risks not quite clear and present, but rather nuanced and subtle. And we have been talking about, among other things, uh, a new kind of portfolio insurance you know, way back in 1987, the conceit was propagated by Wall Street that uh, rather than buying puts or raising cash to protect your equity portfolio, what you could do was to wait until the moment the market uh, took a turn down and then to sell in a most scientific way uh, certain portions of the portfolio. And that would protect you. Uh, timely and targeted selling. Uh, well, that uh, might have worked for some, but it did uh, famously infamously did not work for all. And the market, uh, one fine day in October 1987, was down more than 20 percentage points. Do you see, uh, Evan Lorenz, do you see signs that, uh, that people are leaning too heavily on gimmicks, on, on new techniques that they think are going to neutralize risk that will uh, keep us all safe, when in fact, we have all been behaving as if we are going to... Uh, uh, wind up in a ditch someplace. Uh, absolutely. Um, Bloomberg had a headline today that the Harvard University's endowment, single biggest public investment right now, is a high-yield uh, ETF. If that's not a sign of something, then I, I don't know what is. But it seems like the belief that better models and better technology can insulate your portfolio and give you better returns is an evergreen one. Uh, today, one of the ones that we've written about is uh, risk parity, which is the idea that you can leverage up a portfolio of super safe bonds because they're safe because governments issued them, uh, buy some equities and buy some commodities, and somehow you'll get a better lower volatility return stream than if you just own a, a 60-40 portfolio of stocks and bonds. You know, uh, from time to time in uh, the long history of uh, human affairs, uh, people do uh, invent things that improve our lives. In fact, uh, the improvement in the human condition is uh, is one of the the great threads of of modern history. It certainly is undeniable with a look around the world. It, it's a world of wonders. So it's not as if uh, we humans have not uh, improved our lives. We have in in countless ways. What is it about finance that uh, uh, that that seems to thwart uh, the well-intended inventions? They seem to. Uh, uh, I don't know. There's something. There's something about uh, financial activity. I, I think in the pages of Grant, you can read the quotation perhaps more than once that uh, whereas progress in science is is cumulative, we stand on the shoulders of giants. Progress in finance is cyclical. We keep on 
stepping on the same rakes. Technology improves. Um, information spreads faster, but we just can't get rid of people from, uh, from the whole now financial system. That is the trouble, isn't it? You know, one of our readers, Michael Harkins, who I, um, I think is uh, among the, the longest tenured subscribers, uh, was around in the 1970s when a friend of his, uh, a very accomplished investor, was bewailing to, Mar to Michael. This, again, was about, uh, I guess, 40 years ago. Uh, that it was much harder, he said, this investor said to Michael, it was much harder to make money because uh, the markets had become more efficient because uh, uh, the days had long gone when the only research available was uh, an S&P tear sheet, uh, one of these things that you found in a loose-leaf binder that gave the vital signs of a company, and that was about it. The trouble was, said this investor, that uh, markets had become efficient because information had become ubiquitous. That was 40 years ago. And... Certainly, um, if ubiquitousness takes a modifier or an amplifier, it has become more universal, again, if that's possible. Uh, we are, uh, we are uh, immersed in data, whether we want it or not, want them or not, I'll correct myself. And yet, uh, as Michael Harkins observed, we seem to have come full circle in that uh, with all of these data, with all of the information available to us from conference calls and SEC filings and, uh, and uh, proprietary sourcing of, uh, of customer flows, you name it, with all of this available, uh, the world has, has elided into the conviction uh, that research is futile, right? That's, that's the uh, one of the the mems of the present day on Wall Street, the research is, if not futile, it is of, of a low-yielding activity. Why? Because we all have it, if you follow. Uh, so passive investing is, is uh, popular as never before. Uh, ETFs are popular as never before. ETFs, of course, consist of a number of, of securities, uh, uh, but you can't pretend to be picking those stocks or bonds conscientiously if you were buying them uh, 15 and 20 at a time. So as the ability to make distinctions and judgments about operating businesses uh, with securities attached to them, as the ability to make these judgments has increased, uh, we have seemingly turned our backs on the act of choice and of selection. And kind of on that line, um news came out this week that um, there are actually more indexes of stocks than there are stocks in the universe. Well, I guess that's a, that's a very good thing for the index mongers. You know, um, in the current issue of grants, and I, I must be careful to uh, not to tip away the uh, what we are pleased to call the proprietary research, but um, there's something I do want to talk about. It's a, we may took note of a, a fabulous book. I, it, I'm rather late to it. Uh, the title is No More Champagne. The author is David Lau. And it came out uh, 2015, I believe. The publisher is Picador. Uh, my good friend Paul Isaac sent me a copy, and uh, belatedly I, I took it up. No More Champagne is um, the story, the wonderful, engrossing, nightmarish story of uh, Winston Churchill's reverse Midas touch. Now, Winston Churchill was uh, obviously uh, one of the great statesmen of the 20th century, perhaps the greatest he must have been the worst investor ever born. He was given to every single error 
that uh, characterizes poor investing and poor investors. He was impetuous in his decision making. He um, he reveled in, in in leverage and in rumor, and uh, he um, would. Uh, uh, would conceive from time to time a, a, a very prescient thought, uh, uh, but he wouldn't stick with that thought. He would, uh, he would um, uh, take a profit or uh, sell to cut short a loss, and and uh, he would pay his brokers more than he paid his estate. Finally, but he, he was, my goodness, what a what a, um, a, a demonstration of, of of human frailty, and what and what by the way, an, a demonstration of how uh, how fallible is even the the greatest human specimen? Churchill certainly being one of those great specimens. What makes uh, uh, Churchill's financial life so fascinatingly awful for me, a middle class kid from the middle of Long Island, uh, is his insistence on on skating at the edge of insolvency. Ah, God, you read this, you almost break into a cold sweat. I mean, he made a lot of money. He was, of course, one of the great stylists of his time. He wrote book upon book. He was a sought-after speaker. He was fabulous at that as well, a good parliamentarian. Um, uh, And he he made uh, income that put him certainly in the upper one percentile of British earners, yet uh, he spent just a little bit more than he earned, always. It's as if he was on a mission to, uh, to almost become insolvent at all times, and uh, I don't know how David Lau does it in this book, but he, he he carries forward this narrative of, of financial risk taking and, and near ruination through more than 300 pages. You never get, you often get appalled, but you're never tired. He ties in the politics with the uh, uh, the personal financial. Uh, narrative. It's just a, it's a fabulous, engrossing, and horrifying read. And he, he, he um, kind of treats the uh, the biography of the British pound in a parallel fashion. You can see the the debasement of the pound as as, uh, as Winston Churchill proceeds to debase his his income and his his, his net worth. Ah, it's uh, it's some kind of some it's some kind of gothic read, Evan. I'm, I'll say that it's it's it's. I, I hardly recommend this book. It's wonderful. So what else? Uh, here it is. The, the the Wednesday after the Tuesday, which we go to press, and uh, I think we are both to be commended for being upright. But I know something else is on your mind, Evan. Yeah. Well, uh, Churchill showed just how to buy and sell wrong, but it seems like that's not necessarily something unique to him. Right now, the one of the most popular investment strategies is selling volatility um, in one form or another, whether that's buying uh, an ETF that does it for you or, or, or selling puts. Um, the VIX has been plumbing uh, 24-year lows over the last uh, few weeks. And as it's plumbing lows, the strategy of selling volatility is becoming even more popular. And it, and it just seems like people are kind of piling into what's working without giving much thought to the shape of the world. And as you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, um, that risk can't be destroyed. It can just be moved around. Yeah. And in the meantime, I, I can't help but noticing, looking at the newspaper, that not all is well in Washington. And, um, you know, in the pages of Grants have described, uh, uh, I think the 45th president is the incumbent, is it, is it not? The 45th president, yes, Donald Trump, is an unconstrained bond fund without the compliance department. Uh, so, uh, 
I don't know, it's, it seems an awfully peculiar time for people to be uh, collectively reaching the conclusion that, uh, uh, that there is not much risk out there in the wide world. Uh, and indeed, to, uh, uh, to be selling volatility, which is it's a concept that takes some getting used to, doesn't volatility being a kind of an ethereal thing? It's, a, it's movement. It is not a stock, not a bond not a bar of gold, it's not a thing exactly, except, oh yes, it is a thing. Uh, billions and billions of dollars are being, shall we say, invested, gambled, speculated in the movement of securities prices, as opposed to those prices themselves, as opposed to the businesses that stand behind those prices. You do sometimes wonder, at least I wonder, where actually is the underlying? We know what the derivatives are. They make the headlines, but the businesses themselves somehow uh, seem to have been pushed out into the shade. We have two weeks, Evan, to produce another copy of Grant's Interest Rate Observer. Can we do it? I hope so. Well, I, I can be more emphatic than yet. Than that, yes, uh, affirmatively, we will. And in the meantime, we will talk to you from, uh, from the studio in our area on the sixth floor of Two Wall Street. So for Grant's Interest Rate Observer Radio, I'm Jim Grant, and I thank you for being with us today.